On this week's edition of New York Now, we unpack the oftentimes polarizing relationship between communities and policing. Then, we shed light on the efforts to address the opioid overdose epidemic in the state. And we'll discuss how medication-assisted treatment is being used to help those battling addiction. I'm Chantel Destra, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Chantel Destra. It's no secret crime and public safety can oftentimes be extremely contentious topics. Just think back to the last statewide election cycle, where many Republican candidates centered their campaign messaging on the race and crime in New York City, for example, to garner support amongst voters. While being painted as soft on crime, Democrats were on the defense. Voters in New York have ranked crime as one of their top concerns. A recent Siena College poll found about 61 percent of New Yorkers worry about being a victim of crime. So that conversation is likely to be another sticking point as we look ahead to the upcoming legislative session, just less than one month away, and to elections next year. But apart from crime, another important aspect of the public safety conversation has to do with policing. These are the people that are tasked with protecting communities and stopping crime. And when it comes to addressing crime and public safety, some see increased funding for police as the solution, while others have pushed for increased funding to address some of the root causes of crime, such as mental health and addiction support. For more on New Yorkers' relationship to policing, we'll be sharing a New York and policing episode to help you better understand how local policies impact what policing looks like in your community. Welcome to New York and Policing. I'm your host, Chantel Destra. With this show, we like to cover topics that have a connection to local or state government and look at things that your community can have a say on. This episode's topic, policing, is one that can be heavily impacted and influenced by local government, which is important as there are no national standards for policing in the U.S. It raises the question of what do communities want policing to look like? In this episode, we'll go over the public perception of policing, what advocates want to change about policing, how the police view their role, and the ways that local government can have an impact on policing in the community. Policing can be an incredibly polarizing topic, with social movements like Black Lives Matter and Back the Blue becoming prominent elements of politics and culture. This is not a modern phenomenon, however, as tensions around policing have existed for as long as there has been racial inequality in the U.S., which is, well, the whole time. And racism is often a major crux of this issue. Scholars tend to point to two origins of policing in the U.S. Some point to the creation of an official publicly funded police force in Boston in the 1830s. And others point to the various forms of patrolmen and watchmen in the 16 and 1700s who were often responsible for monitoring and controlling slave populations. 
Some advocates point to today's extrajudicial murders of people of color at the hands of police as an example of the legacy of historic racism that continues to plague the nation. Other folks say, well, hold up, I just want someone around to protect me from being a victim of a crime. So where do New Yorkers stand? A 2020 Siena Research Institute poll showed that 60% of New Yorkers believe that the killings of George Floyd and Rashard Brooks were part of a broader pattern of excessive police violence towards Black people and were not isolated instances. 60% of polled New Yorkers also supported the demonstrations happening state and nationwide at the time, such as the Rally for Black Lives, which saw over 11,000 people gather in downtown Troy on June 7, 2020. So at the time of that survey, a majority of New Yorkers believed that there was an issue with police violence, particularly against people of color, and more recent national polling shows a decrease in confidence that police treat black and white people equally. Solutions to the problem of police misconduct are where things get more complex, as there are a lot of suggested ways to handle this issue, each with their own level of support and opposition. We reached out to Eva Bass, the executive director of A Village, an advocacy group that focuses on ways to support marginalized people in the Albany community. She believes that a form of community policing, which involves familiarizing officers with the members of the neighborhoods they serve, could be a way of having police departments improve their relationship with the community. South End, West Hill, Arbor Hill, North Albany, Sheridan Hollow. The reality is that the historic relationship between police and these type of neighborhoods are not very positive. We have police officers that are very great at community building, I would say, um, and, you know, creating relationships um, with the community members. Um, but I think that that needs to be um, increased um, a lot. There are some police officers that are actually from this neighborhood or these neighborhoods in this community. So they're able to connect on a different level than police officers who do not reside or have any kind of connections or ties in the community. Um, and I think that that's a very important thing to have. Um, but I know it's very difficult on both ends because I know that, you know, the police have been looking to enroll more people from the community, um, but that has been a very long challenge um, to really get the community involved in police enforcement or law enforcement. Along with community policing, various forms of training is an often cited means to prepare police for the various types of situations they could encounter on the job. But when it comes to modifying the way police operate, it's important to consider the amount of responsibility that they are tasked with. Here's Chief David Kivern from North Greenbush PD with his thoughts. Uh, they're tasked with public safety, uh, you know, enforcing the laws, but at the same time, they're also asked to, uh, to attack things from more of a, uh, a community-oriented perspective, which oftentimes comes in the form of being uh, sometimes the armchair therapist or the uh, armchair substance abuse counselor. Uh, we also, we respond to EMS calls. So an officer can go from making an arrest to uh, 
working with somebody on an EMS call and providing medical care. So we've we've kind of taken on roles in every avenue of public safety, um, you know, in a, in a way that other uh, other entities haven't. Right now, we're dealing with a lot of mental health and substance abuse issues, and that's something that we uh, traditionally really haven't had to deal with a lot. But now we have to, so we're increasing the training that we're doing for the officers and, uh, and giving them, getting them better prepared. But again, they're they're asked to be the armchair psychologist or or the armchair substance abuse counselor. This takes years for people to learn how to do. The officers can't possibly do that. There there are people for those jobs, so um, you know it, it makes it very difficult, and it's asking a lot of the officers to be able to to do their job every day. But. Uh, we, we do our best to try to stay on top of it because ultimately at the end of the day, the goal is do better for the community. Another common proposed means of addressing both crime and police misconduct is with defunding, reducing, or reallocating funds and resources from police budgets into social services instead. Alterations to police funding do not pull well with New Yorkers. But there's also a variety of ways that public safety resources could be allocated. We asked Eva Bass her thoughts on police and criminal justice funding. I do believe that uh, law enforcement should be properly paid. They do put their life on the line um, and definitely, you know, have showed up in a positive way um, despite any negative, um, you know, situations that we do have in our communities. But I think that what we need to do is look at how those resources are allocated. Are they just allocated straight to the police or are they allocated also to support um, initiatives and um, different departments to address the um, root causes of violence and in, in certain issues in our community? For example, we have a large um, homeless or unhoused situation in our community. And instead of criminalizing, you know, we should invest in certain strategies to address it. Uh, we have a large opioid and drug issue in our community. And so we need to look at ways to not only make sure that their sa the safety concerns are addressed, but also how are we trying to resolve those issues by creating positive programs or outlets. Many justice reform advocates want to address crime by looking at its causes instead of addressing it as or after it happens. But as we said earlier, alternate means of funding for criminal justice measures can be a very polarizing thing that attracts a variety of opinions. So it's up to each community to decide how they want to approach these things. On top of that, a lot of the issues that cause crime are large-scale structural issues that may need to be addressed at the state or even national level. But while the systemic issues intertwine with crime and policing, like housing insecurity and lack of mental health support affect all communities, it's up to each community to figure out how they want the police to respond. For the police's perspective on the matter, we spoke with Chief David Kievern. I'm a detractor of defund. I think at first the, the intent was, well, we have police officers doing things that we should have social workers doing. And I, I completely agree that we step into those waters and we really shouldn't be. Somebody's approaching it from the, uh, from the standpoint of we need to deallocate those funds to social causes or social services so that they can do the job 
Absolutely. I think every police officer agrees with that because we're, we, we know there are people who are better equipped to do certain things we're doing. We'd rather they be doing that. But if the intent is really, even, even you know, surreptitiously, to abolish the police department, it's the wrong call. It doesn't serve public safety. Give me specific ideas as to where you think the money can be taken from. Like what units do you think should not exist and what you're going to do with that money. And you know, the unfortunate part is that uh, you know, most police departments across the country are already pretty strapped on budget anyway. Before we continue, I just want to remind you that the police are not some hidden or mysterious entity in your town or city. While policing regulations have been incredibly contentious in places, it is something that your local government can oversee and have control over, like the implementation of body cameras or the scope and allocation of resources for the police budget. Those decisions are often up to officials like the mayor and local councils. But there is another local entity that may or may not exist in your town or city called a Community Police Oversight Board. These tend to be third-party entities that exist as a check on police misconduct. In Albany, there is the Community Police Review Board, often referred to as the CPRB. The Albany CPRB consists of nine members, five appointed by the mayor and four appointed by the city's common council. The main role of the CPRB is to look into allegations of police misconduct and provide policy and disciplinary recommendations based on their investigations. And their investigative capabilities were enhanced just a few years back when Albany's Common Council approved a law called Local Law J, which granted the CPRB greater access to police investigatory materials as well as subpoena power, allowing the board to conduct its own independent investigations. Despite this increase in authority, board member and former police officer John Lewandowski said that Local Law J's implementation has not been as smooth as it could be. Local AJ is new, uh, relatively new, um, and anytime there's kind of a power shift or power, uh, there's going to be some conflict, and and we definitely do see some of that um, uh, with this new change um, in the law. We've unfortunately um, continued to see challenges a lot from the leadership in the department and in the leadership uh, in City Hall. We've had issues with regards to that new our new ability to have subpoenas where officers are refusing to comply with subpoenas because the department's not clear on whether they're going to get indemnity or not with regards to those subpoenas. Also, it's not just subpoenas for uh, interviews with personnel, but also subpoenas for uh, certain files are being uh, ignored by the city and the department. In Albany, uh, through the collective bargaining agreement for the uh, PD, the department uh, and has only 12 months to um, initiate a discipline against an officer for a incident uh, for, uh, from the start of the complaint um, and you know that's not being done in a timely manner so even when there are things that should be done or the community wants to be done um, with regards to discipline uh, we're already past a statute our, our limitation our statute of limitations to actually impose any actual discipline um, at the end of the day um, you know we don't take what we do lightly. Um, we understand, you know, having people look over your shoulder when you're doing a job isn't necessarily a comfortable thing, but, you know, in America, we live in a land of checks and balances. Um, and that's, you know, that's what we want to have here with our board. 
The CPRB has also raised concerns over its own funding. Currently, funding for the board is tied at 1% of the police budget, but the board has said in order to maximize its effectiveness, it would need to be 5%. We wanted to share all of this info with you because it's a great example of local officials identifying an issue and implementing something that the community wanted with Albany Common Council members voting unanimously to approve Local Law J as a result. In regards to the challenges the CPRB has been facing since then, we'll have to monitor what the Albany community thinks and how officials decide to respond. Due to the local nature of policing, it will be up to the towns and cities throughout the state to decide what they want policing in their communities to look like today and in the future. Maybe some communities feel their police department needs a funding boost, while others want alternative means of addressing crime. If it's something you feel passionate about, keep tabs on your local officials and make sure to get your voices heard. That's all we're gonna cover for today, but it's up to you to keep the conversation going. Thank you for watching and see you next time. To find more information and resources on policing in New York State, as well as New York and content, you can visit our website. That's at nynow.org. Now switching gears to another topic, we have a new episode from WMHT's series featuring stories and solutions for opioids and addiction in the state of New York. The state's Office of Addiction Services and Supports found that the overdose death rate for opioids in New York has been trending upward in recent years. Part of addressing this crisis includes unpacking the various ways of tackling addiction. In this episode, we spoke with public health officials and patients to explore how medication-assisted treatment can assist with addiction recovery. This story is told through the lens of Greene County family planning. Medication-assisted treatment is the use of medication to help someone with a substance use disorder. We often refer to it as MAT. Here at Green County Family Planning, we offer a low threshold harm reduction program, and that means that we don't really have any requirements such as counseling um, or other things that patients need to do to receive medication. Historically, a lot of treatment programs have been abstinence-based and have a lot of rules. You can't use alcohol, you can't use marijuana or any other substances. They also would have a lot of requirements for counseling, attending groups. Um, and here we kind of see what the patient thinks will help them. Not everyone wants to go to groups and talk about their use with other people. We let them lead the, their own recovery. We can use three different medications for opioid use disorder. They are Vivitrol, Buprenorphine, and Methadone. So in our brains, we have receptors that take up the opioids, whether it's a prescription for oxycodone, whether it's heroin or fentanyl. The way that buprenorphine works is it sits on that receptor site and tightly closes it off so that even if a person uses additional opioids on top of it, they will not have impacts. It has a ceiling effect at about 24 milligrams, and at that dose, people feel well, they don't have the need to use, and they are protected from additional opioids. So it's actually a harm reduction measure on its own. It's a safer alternative to opioids. I'm a patient here on MAT. I've been in recovery for seven years, and 
and um, I switched to the Sublocade injection um, about two years ago from the regular Suboxone strips. It helps with cutting the cravings. It, it makes you to where you can get up every day and, and remind yourself how good you're doing and that you're not going back to using something else. It gets me through my life day to day seven years later and I'm now working as a recovery peer advocate and I never thought I'd be on that side of the table at all. The itch of wanting to potentially use substance to get me through a hard time and make it easier or make a great time even better, um, buprenorphine is like a safety net and removes that, that itch in the back of my mind so that I could build the pillars of, of a you know healthy, stable foundation and a healthy life and just not have shaky ground underneath me, you know. Stigma is huge because a lot of what fuels addiction and substance abuse is shame. And that's hiding, lying, trying to cover up this sneaky, dark lifestyle that you don't want people to find out because of either judgment or being treated differently. When you stigmatize it, you make people feel ashamed. They're already feeling ashamed of themselves. And it makes it to where they don't want to ask for help. It means that they're going to be at their rock bottom forever, letting them know that someone's there to walk them through their journey and that it's possible is will change everybody, everything. There is no judgment walking in these doors here. If I were to show up one day for an appointment and say, hey, I used heroin today, they will still work with me to find you know, the help that I need in any way that they can. We understand that people may use again and that they're not perfect, but everyone makes mistakes. It's a struggle. I always tell people that if it was easy, then we wouldn't have lots of people requesting to come in because it's a, a really hard problem. As the public health officials and patients underscored, medication-assisted treatment is one way to address addiction. You can visit our website to find more information on treatment services at Greene County Family Planning. Next up in our series, we share how one coalition is addressing the opioid overdose crisis by providing support for those battling addiction and by bringing awareness to the issue. Here's that story. The Rensselaer County Heroin Coalition is a group of people from Rensselaer County that are trying to reduce the overdoses that we have in our county, both fatal and non-fatal. We meet every six weeks. Uh, we have 1,100 people on our listserv. We have between 80 and 90 people that come faithfully all the time. We have an auditorium, we have a panel. I always have someone in recovery talk because that's extremely important. We learn from that person most of all. You know, how did they get there? What were the barriers? What's the hope? I also engage everybody in the audience because it's not my coalition, it's the community's coalition. So you'll see at my meetings, I take the time for everyone in, that has come will introduce themselves. And we have uh, many people from schools, local politicians, both from the federal level down to the local level, department heads, providers, people that are in recovery, people that are still using that want to come, people that lost their loved ones. We have faith-based, which is a very important part. The faith-based people know their community really well. State troopers, we have local police, uh, we have our sheriffs. There is always um, two sides to everything. I always say that we need to respect our opinions um, because we're just here to help each other out. There is times where 
topics will be a little controversial, but I try to bring it together. I try to show respect for everybody. I want everyone to be able to talk and to share their opinion and to be respected for that. We have six subgroups. One of our subgroups is legislation. Very important group. Um, they're very active. They involve our assemblymen, our senator, and our congressmen. They're very influential to the legislation going on in Albany. People ask, well, what do you accomplish? And the main thing that we accomplish is those connections. For them to come all the time at our Heron Coalition is a really uh, strong influence on us, and our voices get carried over to Albany, which is really, really important. The opioid crisis has impacted Rensselaer County due to the fact of how many people have died in our county. A lot of families are hurting, uh, they lost their loved ones, um, friends, relatives. There's not many people right now that if you talk to that haven't been affected by the opioid crisis. We have the Rensselaer County Recovery Helpline that we developed in 2018, which I'm really, really proud of. We have developed a helpline that people could call 12 hours a day, seven days a week. It's all volunteers on the other end, and they do um, help you with information and a linkage to care. There is hotlines that the state offers, but what we wanted in Rensselaer County is to be able to have the grassroots here and our people on the other end know our resources, know how to get people into treatment, know what insurances are taken in different providers. Over 400 people have been linked to care. And we're really proud of that because that's 400 people that we can say that have been saved. And the work of supporting those battling addiction and bringing awareness to the opioid addiction crisis is ongoing. For more information on the efforts to address the opioid overdose crisis and to find all of the past episodes diving into the stories and solutions of opioids in New York, you can visit our website. Again, that's at nynow.org. Now that does it for this episode of New York Now. Thank you for tuning in and see you next week. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET and by the New York State Education Department.